All right. It looks like we are recording. My only stipulation, team, is that we have to do the entire show in our best New Zealand accent. No, absolutely not. Oh, no. I can't do that. Thus. (laughs) All right. Well, then, fine. I'll let you off the hook this time. We'll just do it in our... (laughs) In our standard voices, um, but maybe a director's cut version. <laughs> with that's all you. That's <laughs> if you if you ever do like a southern uh, a film that takes place in the south, I can do like a, a mediocre southern accent. Oh, fantastic! Okay, good to know. Perfect. We'll have you back on for like Lone Star or something. Like that. <laughs> or like Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Yeah. Uh, yes. Oh, well, uh, we will officially start the show. Hello, one and all. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. I'm Carly. And our guest today is a wonderful freelance writer, critic. His work is in New York Times, Slate, GQ, and elsewhere. And he is uh, adamant about the fact that he is indeed not a golem. It's Kyle Turner joining us today. Kyle, thanks so much for being on the show. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and talk about the film that we're going to talk about. Thank you again. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you. Uh, Today, we are going to be discussing Peter Jackson's 1994 film, Heavenly Creatures. This is pre-Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, uh, in arguably his finest hour. Some of his best work being done here, though. I See, I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. Carly, you are not an enormous Lord of the Rings fan. Well, I I will say... Kyle's piece in Polygon on the camp uh, contained in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, actually, and I expressed this to you, Kyle, it actually made me appreciate the movies more than I had for many years, (laughs) because I was able to sort of reapproach them with that mindset and Mm -hmm. really see some of the, as you say, see more of the seams of the movie and it's sort of commentary on artifice. And that made the movies more enjoyable. I, I, I sympathize. Thank you so much for reading that, by the way. Um, yeah, I, I, they're, they're unwieldy. And there's, uh, I, I, especially, I think, Two Towers is hard to sit through if you're mm-hmm. not sort of already invested in that universe. I grew up watching them with my mother because my mother was a huge Tokenite. Um, and I and I read the books, but I don't have as much investment in them as she does. Like she read the Lost Tales and the Silmarillion and everything, but there was like this very long period of time where I didn't watch them, and I rewatched them with friends very recently, and um, I was like, oh, this is campy. This is ridiculous. <laughs> There's this like gigantic spectacle, and yet it is so clear that it is sort of aiming for something and then registering in a very different way for me as an adult, as an out queer person and whatnot, just like, especially mm-hmm. when Kate Blanchett or Galadriel just like turns into evil Galadriel and she's like, that's drag queen material. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think when I was a kid, uh, I, I, I saw them as kind of like these immaculate sort of almost otherworldly creations of fantasy and this piece that we keep talking about, which we'll link to, this this Polygon piece, which is fantastic, okay. uh, articulated the thing I started to feel about the movies as I, as I grew up, as I came to know more about Peter Jackson's history, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of director he was prior to The Lord of the Rings, and realized, oh yeah, there's a lot in this film, in these films that are very silly. Yeah, uh, you know, and 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 over the top, and and loud, and and camp right like it it, mm-hmm. it is there 
And rather than see those things as detractors from, from my enjoyment, I was like, no, these are the things that actually make this feel like the loving work of a creator rather yeah. than some artificial manifestation. Absolutely. And I, I think the ability to imbue a sense of humor in that universe when I think Lord of the Rings, like other gigantic franchises, uh, have their fandoms that take the work very very seriously i think it's so important to be able to to be able to embrace those texts with a sense of humor with a sense of frivolity or whimsy um and it makes it more accessible to other people in my opinion it's one of the reasons i loved reading that piece of yours kyle because after i read it i i said to aaron i was like okay this this makes me feel not as bad for the moments that I was like outright like guffawing watching yeah. that movie because prior to that prior to sort of coming to the text with the with the really um lovely perspective that you had in that in that article I felt like bad for laughing I was like I shouldn't be laughing at these movies like this is supposed to be really serious this is like a very, um, you know, well-tread uh, literary epic that, like, I cannot disgrace with my with my silliness, mm-hmm. and and yet I still found there to be moments where in that movie where I just was like, this is so dumb, like <laughs> this is just this is just silly. Um, right. So, anyways, not to not to belabor the point, but I really just do. I really do appreciate the the sensibility that you brought to that film because I think it probably brought more people into that text than had been previously. I I hope so, and I think it it's kind of silly to not incorporate at least that kind of perspective, especially given the kind of director Peter Jackson is. Like, yes, if anything. I think we'll end up talking about it, but Heavenly Creatures is sort of a turning point. But Lord of the Rings ends up being like the biggest departure aesthetically for him and tonally. Mm-hmm. Yep. But we'll get into that, I'm sure. We absolutely will. And that's, I think, a good jumping off point to talk about this film. 1994, Heavenly Creatures, Peter Jackson, working with his partner and frequent collaborator, Fran Walsh, writes this script about this very famous murder in 1954 in New Zealand um, at the hands of two uh, teenage girls. As you said, I, th- I think that the film itself, the aesthetic, and the the way that they tell this story is like a perfect sort of bridge between the early work of Peter Jackson as a sort of comedy horror director in the vein of like a Sam Raimi into this kind of pristine kind of horror element, but with the fantasy elements injected too, right? Like this is the first time that he's playing around with a lot of this swords and shields and maidens and castles kind of stuff that will eventually (laughs) come to like occupy a big part of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It's not quite maybe like a Rosetta stone, but, but certainly something of like kind of a, a missing link in terms of like where Peter Jackson came from, where he's going. Mm -hmm. As Carly and I both said, maybe off mic earlier, you know, this is the first time either of us have seen it, um, had had never come to it before, but I was curious, Kyle, maybe what your history with it was, how you discovered it, when you discovered it, and (laughs) how you feel about the film. I first saw it in high school. Um, I don't don't remember the exact circumstances, but I do remember very specifically 
Um, I was in high school. It was in my living room, and I had found it on DVD at the library. And I was interested because I was a really big horror movie person growing up. And despite the fact that I had seen Lord of the Rings with my mother and whatnot, um, this was ended up being an entry point to go into Jackson's filmography, kind of in reverse, basically. Because mm-hmm. um, after this, I did end up watching, um, like, uh, Meet the Feebles and Brain Dead, etc. I was sort of mesmerized by and continue to be kind of mesmerized by the way in which it sort of articulates fantasy not only as something that you can get lost in, but as something that is effectively consumptive. Like mm. you are seduced by the idea of being able to escape from your current circumstances. Mm. Um, and I, I like the word seduce because the dynamic between Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky is part of this like very deranged um, and complicated um, seduction, not only of one another, but into a, a world in which that they can escape from their current situations. Yeah. And I love what you said about it being consumptive because sort of a corollary to that, that I was thinking about watching this movie is that it's also an intensely productive thing. I think oftentimes it can be characterized as a withdrawing or sort of like an absence, like removing oneself like into fantasy. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I love about this movie is that it actually showcases the sort of positive output of, Mm -hmm. of their minds and the, and when I say positive output, I don't necessarily mean like outcomes, um, (laughs) but just the, the sort of generative qualities, right. That, Mm -hmm. that, um, that their fantasy and their imagination has, and that it is in fact, like a productive act to go mm-hmm. build these worlds and and inhabit them. And they and I believe it's Melanie Linsky who writes in her diary that they're geniuses that no one else understands, which I think yes. is mm-hmm. so interesting to as far as a kind of codifying genre. It is kind of a mad genius film in a way mm-hmm. they are both as you're saying being very um creatively generative and they're mm-hmm. both creating these different worlds uh that have a, a very explicit sort of relationship or dialogue with the existing art that's around them like mario lanza the opera singer um they go to see the third man the carol reed film with orson wells and mm-hmm. those are not just worlds that they can get lost into um but they also function as like inspirational texts mm. off of which they're building those worlds mm-hmm. yeah you know this trope of like you know the adolescent or, or the child retreating into their fantasy world to escape the trauma of their day-to-day is one that's well tread you know in, in literature and in film before and after this film but one of the things that I find so fascinating about this one specifically is the way that it sort of subverts that calm or that reprieve in terms of the fantasy uh, as a retreat and sort of becomes a thing that starts to subsume their actual psychology, their actual day to day, their actual existence to the point where we start to see it as this sort of like we, we, we feel dread around it. Right. We start to realize that it's it's starting to delude them into seeing the world in a way that it really isn't. And, and we kind of pray that they remain 
tethered to some semblance of reality. And it, it colors this whole thing with just this sort of very dark, dark kind of atmosphere and tone to it as the film goes on and, and makes it all the more fascinating and beautiful because of it. I think it sounds pretty alone in, in the way that it, it exercises this. I hadn't even thought about it as like a, a mad genius kind of film, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, that there are elements of that and, and, you know, like the, the psychotherapy from, from doctors and things of trying to, to correct their, as we'll call like intemperance, right. Or, or psychosis, even though that thing is really just maybe like latent homosexuality that isn't uh, able to, to be fully exemplified and, and lived in, in their, their day-to-day lives. But there are trace elements of like, of a noir in here. There, mm-hmm. there is the horror film element. There's the fantasy. It's just this like mm-hmm. wonderful kind of genre mishmash that never feels disparate. It, it feels like a very mm-hmm. cohesive and, and incredibly original whole. And also what I think is interesting is that the fantasy worlds that they're creating are not inherently safe. Like mm-hmm. the royal family um, that she's making out of the, this clay, there is built into it conflict. Like part of their, part of Melanie Linsky's joy is, is sort of um, unpacking the conflict within that whole world um, and creating a melodrama out of it and then uh, mm-hmm. as, as we said there's them entering into uh, the shadowy canted angle filled world of, of Orson Welles and yes. it's sort of interesting yep. that as they are escaping or, or, or constructing these worlds to escape their trauma they're entering worlds that don't necessarily offer them any more safety that mm. there is this strange comfort in as in an aestheticized danger as opposed to the horrible realities and banalities of, of danger in the real world. An aestheticized danger that they have slightly more agency yeah. over, right? Mm-hmm. Like with the figure of Diello in the Baravnian royal family that they make, who is uh and I I wonder how much Liberty Jackson and Walsh took here, but Diello is very much made in the likeness of Orson Welles. And he is a very clear manifestation of their sort of deepest, most earnest, violent desires to rage against, you know, adult authority figures. Each time they encounter a new adult authority figure in the real world, finger quotes, there's this imagined response where Diello is sort of acting as their dispatcher of of violence. It's interesting to think about these two girls being drawn to the violence so much so that they are populating their fantasy worlds with it very purposefully and that there is an element of danger that is seductive as you say Mm -hmm. to them there's a lot more to say on all of these fronts but i do i think briefly want to talk a little bit about just like the creation of the film itself where it comes from and and maybe get into just a little bit of of like a plot synopsis here like a back of the box type thing Um, but this film of course is a, a peter jackson creation coming off of the heels of uh, Bad Taste, Brain Dead, as you mentioned already, Kyle, or, or Dead Alive, as it's known to a lot of people. These kind of more comedy, horror, gore fests, <laughs> you know? Um, and so this is kind of him entering into a s- slightly uncharted territory for him and, and something that comes to, I think, 
define Peter Jackson's style over the the next couple of decades. But it's also the introduction of Melanie Linsky and Kate Winslet to the film world at large. And and of course, like we most of us know who Kate Winslet is. Um, you know her her reputation speaks for herself. But I'm I'm part of the Linsky hive. I love Melanie Linsky. Ah, I think she's great. fantastic in here. Uh, you know, she <laughs> is also in like uh, completely underutilized, but but in that great film Shattered Glass with like Hayden Christensen and Peter Sarsgaard mm-hmm. from like the early aughts. Um, she finally made it into like another co-starring role opposite Elijah Wood in Macon Blair's film. Um, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Mm-hmm. I think it's a I think it's a Netflix original, but Macon Blair's longtime collaborator of Jeremy Saunier as well. So. Uh, you know, that that's kind of a cool jumping off point and, and a similar kind of character, you know, that kind of like sort of violent <laughs> person mm-hmm. who who gets kind of caught in this sort of folia do this sort of like collective psychosis of like wanting to take out their aggression and their their resentment towards the world on people through acts of violence. Uh, but yeah, I, I both of them just put in such incredible work in this film. Um, it, it's easy to see why why Kate Winslet was going to become a star and do something like a Titanic like three years later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, 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 I would be remiss if we didn't say that, you know, yeah, I, I love Melanie Linsky in this and think that yeah. she's just like so, so good. She's so good in everything she's in. She really elevates whatever she's in. I first uh, watched her with my dad when she was on Two and a Half Men. <laughs> right. Not a good she's show. Like, no, oh my gosh, but she I has forgot. like a recurring character yeah. on there, doesn't I she? Yeah. about that. She has a recurring character on that. But she's really wonderful. She has great comic timing. She has like such a, a sparkling charisma about her. Um, and I also love her in Away We Go, um, the film with John Krasinski and Maya Rudolph. Um, that's, oh, right, right, right. Uh, Jason Reitman? It may have been because she's, she's an up in the air as well, oh. very briefly. So I think it might be. Um, Sam Mendes. Oh my gosh. Mm. I almost said Sam Mendes and it's just like that seemed seemed like such a, a muted film for Sam Mendes to do because yeah, he absolutely has um he's often kind of like uh a stylist as far as director. I would not necessarily call him mm-hmm. a quote unquote auteur, but um <laughs> yeah. Nonetheless, um she's very, very lovely in that and she gives probably the best performance in the film as someone who has I believe had a miscarriage and um, Maya Rudolph's character is pregnant and she and John Krasinski are sort of are traveling and she is sort of quietly confronting the loss that she has experienced and has to sort of um, re-experience with the presence of Maya Rudolph's character. Yeah, you know, I've I've not seen that one, but of course the connective tissue there being that at the time that that was made, I believe Kate Winslet was in fact married to Sam Mendes. Still. Yes. So forgot maybe, about that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. these these two reign supreme, these Hollywood titans, <laughs> Linsky and Kate Winslet behind the scenes, controlling six degrees all of we Kate see. Winslet and Melanie Linsky. <laughs> <laughs> right. No. Absolutely. And and that's a legitimately fun game to play. It is, and especially with Linsky too. Like you said, she comes up and. I, I think she's like criminally underused in a lot of things, you know, and, and takes these supporting roles, but she is in quite a few things and has been like consistently working for her entire career up through today. Yeah. Um, she was always also like briefly married to uh, a McPoyle brother, Jimmy Simpson, the the one from Westworld as well. <laughs> oh, you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. No. And I guess now is, is with um, Jason Ritter 
as of like last year. Huh? What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so she You've remains got the part of the Hollywood elite. He does I have, have the, the tea. tea. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, you know the 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 many marriages of our stars of heavenly creatures. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that can be its own podcast. Yeah, we'll just do like a six degrees episode of of this one of these days where we just get to wax about uh, about the ancestral nature of of Hollywood. But uh, Kyle, would you would you care to take a stab at giving us a brief synopsis of the film? And just don't worry about spoilers. Just like back of the box, it can just be like hijinks and Sue kind of things. Um. Okay. Okay. Um. <laughs> if if not, we're gonna make Carly try it. So. Oh great. Okay. No. Um, so the film takes place in Christchurch, New England. I'm sorry, New England. I am, my brain is broken. (laughs) Uh, We edit this podcast heavily, Kyle, because I am constantly being like, what's that word that rhymes with this other word? And Aaron is just like, we're cutting all of this. So don't, don't worry about it. Um, Thank you. I feel much better. Um, so the film <laughs> takes place in Christchurch, New Zealand in the early 1950s. And it focuses on a on this much wealthier um, English girl named Juliet Hume, who has recently moved to Christchurch um, after the war. And her father is a professor. And she meets... Um, another classmate, Pauline Parker, and they both have this um, recognition of one another, uh, sort of resistance of authority. Pauline is seeming, uh, is a little brooding, um, is l- a little bit of a, not exactly a troublemaker in class, but she has a bit of a, a resistance towards the rigidity of the school that she goes to. Um, she is there's a very clear class distinction or delineation between the two. Um, Pauline's family is much more working class. Her home, I believe, is being rented out as a bed and breakfast. Mm-hmm. And the two strike up this friendship because uh, they are, <laughs> they're not like other girls. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and the friendship begins with an interest in Mario Lanza. And there's a sort of mirroring that goes on because Juliet is... Um, has much more access to that kind of cultural artifact um, or or those kinds of cultural artifacts that indicate a sophistication that uh, Paulette has not, has Pauline has not previously had. And so there's a mirroring mirroring between the two that, that starts to happen and their friendship goes increasingly more intense. They start hanging out all the time, spending time at one another's homes it also extends to the fact that their presence with one another impacts them emotionally and psychologically and um, physically in a way. And that like mm-hmm. whenever Pauline is not hanging out with Juliet, Juliet ends up in the hospital and like is very, very ill. Um, and uh, Juliet's parents are, are not necessarily as attentive as she would like them. Pauline's parents are much more strict than she would like them to be. Um, and so the and and they both experience different kinds of trauma during this time, and together they through their fantasy worlds they realize also in in one another that they both love um, sort of creating 
stories and creating these these universes in which they can kind of both escape and also channel their most um, troubling anxieties. Mm. And over time, um, they develop a very diabolical plan to to rid them of the ills that they feel is that that sounds like a bad i feel like that's a bad um summary not at all that is that's about as as on point as as we can get and have ever gotten on the show if if we tried to do it it would go on for about 25 minutes and include A lot of unnecessary I am the worst at plot synopses. (laughs) Like, whenever I attempt to do them on the show, I finish and I'm just like... We 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 unburden ourselves with them and hand them off to to our guests often because well, it's guests, like our guests inevitably end up doing a better job. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, you know it's it's ultimately because uh, you all spend a great deal of time figuring out how to be yes. very descript and uh, elaborate with with fewer words, and we're people who really like uh, word counts. Carly struggles with composing count. tweets because oh. uh, she wants to say too much. I, I find the same issue often. No, so <laughs> I do the same thing. I will. I, I had um, a piece uh, due recently to an editor. Um, and I think the word count was something like 1500 words. And I delivered 2200. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, Every word counts. Yeah, it yeah. Matters. And what's actually funny is that I'm I'm often quite bad at plot synopses because it occurred to me during pandemic, am I allowed to um like imply drug use? Oh yes. Absolutely. Okay. So during a pandemic I started doing pot. Um and you can tell how new I am to the experience because I use the phrase doing pot. Um like in the <laughs> 60s. But I watched Hello Dolly, which is one of my favorite films of all time. I've watched it like I've I had already seen it dozens and dozens of times, but in the pandemic alone, alone, I watched it about a dozen times. And while I was high once while watching it, it occurred to me that I had no idea what was going on in the plot for the <laughs> like my entire life until that moment. And I was just like, oh, my oh that's why Barbara Streisand is doing that. <laughs> <laughs> So really, it's like this uh, this inversion of society's kind of uh, characterization, mischaracterization of weed, and that it brought you an intense sense of clarity when, yes, you, when exactly. you were high. It, it yeah, jettisoned yeah. you into the fourth world. Yes. You were able to yes. see <laughs> beyond beyond the uh, the seams of ours and, and into Barovnia. Yes, and to understand exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, well done, I, I, well yeah. done, Kyle. I'm, Thank you. Thank you. I am actually am very bad at paying attention to plot because I'm always sort of looking for other things. And You're my favorite like... kind of film watcher in that way. You know, it's like that the Marvelfication of everything has made everyone, you know, see film, I think, as as primarily and principally a vessel by which to receive new plot details. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's rid us of some level of deeper criticism and analysis of films. Um, the subtext and the richness of things mm-hmm. that are very much there in movies mm-hmm. that aren't uh, trying to hit you over the head with Easter eggs every five minutes. So, I yeah. have and- to say, Kyle, I'm I'm right there with you. I often, when Aaron and I are watching movies together, 
find myself asking questions about the plot because I'm not necessarily focused intently on Mm -hmm. the plot. I'm usually looking at costuming or like noticing an angle of a camera shot. Mm -hmm. So it's affirming to hear someone in your field who who writes about (laughs) these works that 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 is not um, I'm not depraved in any way. No, 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 (laughs) not at all. Yeah. I mean, I'm always I'm looking at performances. I'm looking Mm -hmm. at like certain thematic gestures as it yes. were um looking for like motifs so to speak um yes. but i like if if a movie especially is built as relatively complex or complicated um and i love murder mysteries like murder mysteries are one of my favorite genre mm. um i just watched mayor of east town um and mayor of east town is like an an exemplar of that because it understands that plot doesn't actually matter that much. And it is more about so a, a panorama of a community and sort of understanding the, the relational ties to everyone. The fact that one, one thing that comes undone makes the entire thing fall apart. And it doesn't matter like what exactly those plot points are, but rather how it affects these characters, how it affects um, this broader landscape. And that's, that's the kind of thing I, I, prefer to pay attention to whenever I'm watching any kind of movie. Yes. Yeah. And Mare, of course, uh, featuring one Kate, Kate Winslet. Winslet. Yeah. Uh, yep. appro- appropriating a very specific regional accent yes. as well. We were actually just talking about Mare of Easttown in a different context with a- another uh, Kiwi filmmaker, Jane Campion. Yeah. Have you ever seen Top of the Lake? Yes. Yes. You were yes, talking well, to Jane Campion? No, 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 no. no we were no. talking about oh. Jane Campion. <laughs> oh, I was just like, what? I was so jealous. For a second. No, we it, wish. I, we wish. Or, or just Holly Hunter in her Jane Campion yes. wig <laughs> yeah. in that, that <laughs> show. Uh, but exactly what you're talking about, right? I, I, I made the point that I said that like every auteur uh, should be forced to cut their teeth on a television miniseries or, or uh, serial that... Uh, details a, a small community dealing with the the fallout of a murder or disappearance of a young girl um mm-hmm. and <laughs> just like to think of you know like top of the lake as being like jane campion's riff on like a twin peaks type of thing oh yeah absolutely uh, but the exactly the same thing that i expressed to to carly as we're watching it right now is uh it's it's a series completely uninterested in giving you the answers or teasing you with the mystery and more mm-hmm. about just the 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 layers the 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 textures of the community itself how mm-hmm. all of these relationships bounce off of one another it doesn't really want you to spend your time piecing together together the details and getting out like the the string and the corkboard like that is right. not right. that is not the the interest here exactly and you get enough of it to see how it is impacting the collective community and how they mm-hmm. and how it shapes the way that they interact with one another. Like this, there's a scene where Kate Winslet um, is with, I think some, some family and some friends just eating pizza and they're talking about the case, but they're talking about the case sort of as like, they're talking about anything else, but there's obviously mm. a change in tone um, and a change um, in sort of the power dynamics that exist because she's a cop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yep. I think that scene is is a, a really great example of how um, all great murder mysteries are effectively 
um, if not character studies and community studies. Yes. The heavenly creatures. <laughs> no, I was going to say, well, much like heavenly creatures, right? Yeah. Like, you know, the, the mm. film is predicated on, uh, on a, a finale that we are actually given in the opening moments of the film, right? Which mm-hmm. is an incredible opening, this sort of like idyllic uh, stock footage kind of tourist video of Christchurch. And oh, the only other place in the world with more bicycles is Norway or whatever they you know mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. And then it starts getting intercut with bloody legs and feet, you know, sprinting through the forest. The screams start taking over the, the soundscape and... And before long, we're just hearing just the wailing of these these two girls as they're you know running soaked in blood through the woods to a to a home to to say you know mummy's hurt mummy's mummy's mm-hmm. been been hurt something's badly something's happened to mummy something's mm-hmm. happened to mummy it's also intercut with a sepia tone footage of girls running or a girl running on a ship. Yes, mm-hmm. that we see later as yeah. a, a sort of manifestation of one of their kind of fantasies or dreams, right? Pauline dreaming that she and Juliet take off on a boat and sail out somewhere um, mm-hmm. with Juliet's parents, and they live happily as as a family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to remember if in the fantasy, is it is it Mrs. Hume... And her new lover, uh, Mr. Perry, or is it the Humes on the deck of the boat that they're running towards? I thought it was the Humes. I thought it was yeah, the father sure. because okay. Juliet also very much wants her mother and father to, to stay be together. together right. So yeah. I thought as much. That that would make more sense. That's good to know. But right off the bat here, yeah, you we're we're getting these three kind of like competing things, right? Like the the terror of reality butting up against uh, the pristine quality of this place as we're supposed to know it and, and as it was perceived. Uh, and then also, of course, of this elaborate fantasy, these sepia-toned kind of moments of uh, of a more subjective reality that they wish that they were in. Uh, I want to I wanna just throw out to the both of you something that I felt watching the opening and and was affirmed for me the further we wa- I watched the, the movie, um, which is that the film, you know, Jackson and uh, and his cinematographer do a really tremendous job, I think, of like situating us in a subjective perspective. Yes. Uh, but also um, I found myself sort of thinking about, as you said, Kyle, the kind of like mania that's contained in these banalities of our everyday existence um, and also kind of like the mania that's bubbling just under the surface of like the proper, like very proper, posh, idyllic sort of um, genteel ways of behaving. Um, And I found it interesting that he opens the film with what is ostensibly imperialist propaganda about this place. Mm -hmm. And that that kind of sets the tone for this like, this barbarism that lives underneath the surface. Yeah. I was thinking of the same, the literally the same thing. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> I, I felt that very tacitly at first, and then it really started to sing, sing true as the movie unfolded. There's something about this film that seems to su- suggest, um, I, I don't know 
I, I'm full disclosure. I don't know that much about New Zealand history or New Zealand um, national cinema. Uh, Kyle, that's why I we know. brought you on I'm the show. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm disappointing. You can fire me. Um, no. But I, I'm very much intrigued by this implication that one can read it as an impossible, that the creation of, of New Zealand itself or a New Zealand national cinema or a New Zealand mm-hmm. national identity is impossible without acknowledging that terror, that destruction. Um, it, as you said, it starts with basically imperialist propaganda, archival footage and leaps right into acknowledgement of death. Mm-hmm. Yes. And New Zealand is even younger than Australia. And yes. so there's already a, a kind of fraught history. And, and uh, World War II is constantly being brought up because of Juliet, uh, Juliet's family's connection to that. There is the specter of national trauma just pervading the entirety of the film. Yes, absolutely. 100% agree with you. And there's also the, you know, you mentioned the class distinction between Juliet mm-hmm. and Pauline, but there's also the national, the sort of nationality yes. distinction. Yes, Juliet's right? English and Pauline is, right. is English. New Zealand. Yes, and she's this, she's presented when she first comes to the classroom as this sort of Aryan, cultured, you know, high-minded Brit who has a father that is a professor at this really well-known and established uh, university and that it's her her Britishness that makes Mm -hmm. her this kind of like superior figure in in Pauline's eyes, who is also, you know, sort of like if we're talking about their aesthetic differences, she is dark-haired, um, she's not quite as fair as uh, Juliet and um, dark eyebrows and sort of has a dour look about her. And so I also really love the way the movie kind of aesthetically. And then even when I was looking at photos of the the real two human beings, um, that there is this kind of implicit national identity sort of order of hierarchy between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And as well, like, Spoiler, but like when Juliet's father loses his job, there seems to be like an and also Juliet's own psychosis. There's a dissolution of of seeing England as as superior. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, completely. What I mean, one of the things that obviously comes up here is is, you know, the the queer relationship between these two young women. And the way that it's presented in the film is something I want to talk about, but yes. also uh, the larger, broader sense of the treatment of homosexuality in New Zealand, right? So it, you know, was considered a a disorder, right? Considered sort of like a an element of mental psychosis for a long time. It was criminalized until like the late eighties, I think, like nineteen eighty six. You know, like uh, homosexual acts were expressly forbidden in like the code of law, and. Uh, I, I was hoping, Kyle, maybe you would give us a little bit of your read on it in the film, because for, for something that seems like, you know, the, these are two like very explicitly like queer characters, the film sometimes seems like it's maybe expressing it as just like a a singular element 
of of the manifestation of their closeness and and their friendship and not maybe like something more overt about their mm-hmm. and, and inherent about these these two women mm-hmm. um well i i I would like to first say, as a gay person, I do think that gay persons do not deserve rights anymore. It just, we've gone too far, a little bit, you know. <laughs> now that we have that weird Netflix animated show about, like, gay spies, I think we need to roll it back. Um, but I, my personal, this, this says a lot about my personal taste, um, but I think it's more interesting, just through the, uh, just in art that queerness is is treated more as metaphor than than literally mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i recognize that it, that i is that is a relatively unpopular opinion um be, only because in a lot of in even though there's a, a wide breadth of history of queer cinema which i am very interested in in understanding and exploring i think understanding queerness as an aesthetic as a metaphor as subtext i think it allows for more elasticity in the art form itself whereas Mm -hmm. an anchoring of queerness or homosexuality as a literal material reality thing a lot of filmmakers tend to fall into certain kinds of tropes that are Mm -hmm. either either based in deep trauma or based in some sort of like saccharine resilience. Um, and I think that often constricts the possibilities of storytelling. Um, mm. Not all the time, obviously. I think there are, are great examples like Happy Together um, mm-hmm. by Wong Kar Wai. There's Rugback Mountain, which I still think is very good. Um, there's The Wedding Banquet. Um, a, a litany of films in which um, people's lived experiences are are are. are expressed in really gorgeous thoughtful innovative ways and i think heavenly creatures sort of walks the line between sort of Mm -hmm. being able to articulate um and explore this rumbling sense of of desire between the two as well as being able to um to employ it as this function of their very complicated dynamic Mm. i think it's it ends up leaning a little bit more towards something like ingmar bergman's persona in the sense Mm. that there is an Mm -hmm. it's it's like a failed persona swap film in that there's i think a desire for both them in different moments for their identities to merge and back to like Mm. our reading of the film as as being very much about the the national and geopolitical relationships between England and New Zealand desire for those two to kind of subsume one another or for, for mm. England to subsume New Zealand at least. Um, and I think by using it as metaphor, it, you, it, it makes the more literal version of their lives much stronger um, mm. because it adds a certain dimension and fuel or it adds a dimension to the fuel of the, of the, desire that exists between the two like yes you can read it and it's it is very much telegraphed that it is sexual and that that it is um romantic and there's something um obviously psychosexual and uh, sort of existing on on some other plane that they don't necessarily have the language to express it with but i think that is made all the stronger by connecting it 
to this to this more metaphorical or allegorical kind of function of queerness. Mm. Does that make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. Yes. Completely and totally. And, you know, it, it's bringing up for me, making me think a little bit about the genres that this film kind of uh, plays around in and the ways in which, you know, uh, horror specifically, you know, but also the characters having this infatuation with film noir, which like famously, mm-hmm. you know, like even during a production code uh, had some very overt ways of of implying homosexuality in its characters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of the obfuscation and part of the abstraction of both horror and film noir allowed for a lot more of this room to sort of play around with with these things, with, with mm-hmm. homosexuality as like an indicator. Um, I, I can't remember who said it, but, but uh, film scholar talking about film noir specifically and some of the characters who are queered in film noir as being queer in uh in all of the ways except for the one that actually distinguishes us you know right. like like everything material being the implication of something gay um rather than you know the the the, the explicit like revelation of of showing uh mm-hmm. homosexual activity and, and sex in that way mm-hmm. um so that infatuation with film noir here as well i i think is you know probably something that that comes from the actual history of these characters and obviously mm-hmm. the the sort of temporal place that they occupy. But of course, I think maybe maybe has some of that element in it as well. Mm-hmm. And the ways in which they recognize and, and come to understand their otherness, I think also is able to better define the material world around them. I, I think that um, without necessarily... It's relatively explicit that, that there is some sort of sapphic relationship between them mm-hmm. um but without it becoming some sort of like love simon thing um <laughs> i think it <laughs> i think the the heavy implication and sort of allegorizing of their otherness and their queerness i think helps us to better understand the the trauma that they've experienced their own relationship to their gender, um, their gender in relationship to their family, their gender in relationship to, in, or in relation to the society around them. I love this argument, Kyle, because you're helping me to understand a tension that I felt in the movie that I saw sort of mishandled in a lot of contemporary reviews of the film. You know, there was a Times piece that I read that said something that was written upon the film's release that said something about, oh, these girls, you know, uh, commit this like terrible act of murder and do X, Y, and Z, but then also um, trans- transgress uh, against these more serious taboos wherein they fall in love with one another. And I was like, okay, so your choice ranking, like, murder is less serious than and i just found like i said that, gays um, don't deserve rights <laughs> it's just, this i think this person certainly didn't think so but um but what i'm pointing what i'm pointing to is is this like i noticed in a lot of contemporary writings about the the movie that there was this desire to sort of pigeonhole their queerness into as you're making me understand a sort of more discreet, knowable, uh, like contained space. But 
rejecting that impulse and allowing their queerness to be a bit more expansive and creative and sort of like not confined to real world manifestations transcendent almost transcendent yes yeah, does yeah. does allow for a more nuanced understanding and portrayal of the characters one that i found was missing in a lot of these contemporary reviews that mm-hmm. kind of flattened the characters out and made them into something that i didn't feel the film was actually saying about these two um and the other thing you're making me realize is that um that you know employment of queerness sort of in tandem uh the sort of functional queerness that they that they may or may not experience but then also this more allegorical metaphorical handling of their queerness um also speaks to i think the tension we see in the movie between the sort of oppressiveness of the real world and what they're being confined to and um, the liberation that they find in the fantasy that they create. And also this, I, I, I might be reaching here, but I, I found a reach. sort of, I love reaching. <laughs> Let's reach, reach with me, Kyle. This is, this um, is a playground for us. I'm this five four. So I have to do a lot of reaching. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found that, there's also a parallel tension between this idea of um, of thought versus knowledge, mm-hmm. um, and that we see sort of of markers of this tension throughout the movie. One is the the sort of difference between uh, Juliet's mother, who is characterized as this kind of free thinking, very sort of like openly sexual, um, kind of libertine creature, uh, Mm -hmm. contrasted with her husband who is, um, intensely sort of dour and gray and academic and, uh, you know, confined to the scriptures of that, that space. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so too is this tension between thought and knowledge of the girls and their experience at school. They're, you know, um, Pauline starts out as this straight A student who's kind of docile and, you know, ill-fitting in in sort of her her confinements at school, and ends up being a, a creature who is full of thoughts and ideas and mm-hmm. rejects the actual like knowledge of her schooling. Her grades start mm-hmm. to slip. Her mother remarks on that as like a, a evidence of her depravity and her affliction, whatever it may be. And so I I bring this up because I'm I noticed that tension and I really love this argument you're making about um, sort of the um, the expansiveness and the the creativity that is allowed when utilizing queerness allegorically and that that I see other markers of that tension um, play out in the film as well. Mm. Completely agree. And not only is there this tension between thought versus knowledge. And and a desire to to sort of expand an aesthetic and narrative way of describing queerness, but you mm-hmm. can also see that in that their relationship is also a creative partnership in a lot of yes. ways. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And I think there's a really fascinating um, both unity and tension 
in the worlds that they are creating together. Um, and I think that also is able to express and, and allegorize the way that they kind of understand their own otherness and is mm. and are able to to use that that experience in order to create these these spaces. Yeah, you are um, Carly in, in bringing up those contemporary reviews, kind of speaking to a, a thing that I had feared about, sort of like the more granular read of this this film you know we we had had some you know off off air conversations about this very thing about sort of like the tris the more uh, allegorized transcendent kind of quality of 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 the representation of queerness in the film but in the 90s right in the mid 90s like that was not being handled that way and and certainly uh you know the sensationalizing of those particular elements of the relationship or something that happened in real time in in the 1950s as as this trial was happening after the murder um, and it, it recalls back to me, you know, the the crime of the century, right? Like the the Leopold and Loeb Leopold case. Leopold and Loeb. Yep, mm-hmm. absolutely right. Yeah. And and you know, just like a further uh, kind of read on this to a contemporary audience, being that idea of like uh, queer sort of like degeneracy, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that there is something about that collective psychosis that also uh, expresses itself in this way. And uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad that that's not the read that we have on the film, but but I mm-hmm. you know it's it's one of those things where uh, it, it just further I think proves to me that that Jackson and and Walsh were operating on a different wavelength than a lot of the contemporary audience was, and and we're seeing something I think bigger than uh, than than the much more terrestrial worldly kind of qualities of this film. I thought it was a, a really really important thing and a really great artistic decision for them to focus on the relationship to focus on the psychology of the characters to focus on the fantasy world that they had created instead of make it like a true crime like yeah courtroom thriller yeah um, I, I think that that's just like so so important this times a uh, reviewer did not agree let me tell you i didn't agree with any of this person's takes she was very upset about the fact that the movie was as subjective as it was and um she even remarked in this review that um, the the two uh, mother characters, the maternal characters, are um, very two dimensional, and that they didn't do anything with them. And I thought to myself immediately, "Of course they're two dimensional. Uh, yeah. that's, that's that's how, how the kids characters see their saw parents. them. Right. That's how they yeah. saw these these women as like you know this this figure on paper that they needed to deal with in one way or another." Um, and so, yeah, I think like uh, the the contemporary reviews reflect probably uh an illiteracy perhaps on like a movie going mm-hmm. audience to right. to sort of understand what Jackson uh is presenting us with and also just understand queerness um right. in the 90s particularly mm-hmm. coming out of you know the Reagan era and yeah yeah all of the horrors one thing that i do want to point out is that um the sentencing of the girls is also one that refuses to sort of understand and accept the complications of their relationship. Mm-hmm. There was a plea for insanity that um, despite the fact that queerness was uh, regarded, as a, regarded as a mental illness, the courts did not accept. Mm. And they actually sentenced these girls uh, to the full extent that they could, despite the fact that they were under 18, you know, not as insane, um, didn't send them to an asylum of some sort. Um, they went to prison. 
Um, and I found that interesting because mm. when when we think about, you know, society's sort of uneasiness and their inability to handle the relationship, it's it's interesting to to see that play out, you know, in the justice system as well, mm. where they sort of wanted to say, like, no, like you just did this bad thing. You're girls that need to be punished right. and didn't mm-hmm. explore the other kind of um, the curvatures of their relationships. Mm-hmm. And additionally, um, it was a term of their release that they not meet again. And Precisely. I think that it is uh, going back to like a, a sort of a transcendent articulate cinematic articulation of queerness. I think it, it that end note and the rest of the film diving and really being immersed in the subjectivity of the characters is a, is to me like a much more satisfying exploration of homophobia. If there is this desire um, for there to be some sort of like representation of homophobia or the, um, the both literal and ontological violence against queer people i think it is mm-hmm. that is such a striking way to do it it just like mm. it is both so um understanding of the world that exists in the perimeter of their lives without mm-hmm. necessarily having to sort of continually underlie uh, underline it and then have that one like um title card at the end i think that is um, more devastating than if you had gone through the motions the way that stuff like Boys Don't Cry does or... Right, um, right. I even think of like the imitation game, right? Where it just like, yeah. ends with like a lobotomized like Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> just, you know, like like that to me just feels sickening, yes, and, right. and infuriating, but it doesn't offer... It doesn't offer a conclusion. It just makes me feel angry right 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 and it doesn't really gesture towards a a more systematic understanding of how those things work Uh, this is i think leading into a another conversation that i i was having with myself before this conversation where all the best conversations happen right up here baby yep that's the one brave because i like to have as few voices in my head as possible (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I do too, but I don't succeed. Yeah, my, <laughs> Same. My inner monologue. I don't know if my inner lo- monologue sounds like me. Maybe after editing the show enough times, I know what I sound like <laughs> and don't ever want to hear it again. But uh, this idea of like sympathy for or like rehabilitating the monster, you know, mm-hmm. um, of course, there are truly evil like policies and practices and people in the world, right? they're just often not who we think they are. And, and, you know, this, this kind of infatuation and fascination in our, in our current era with like true crime, I think oftentimes gets criticized in this way of like explorations of monsters only like lead you further into the void and normalize these things. And I, I I think that it would be a, a misapprehension to approach this film that way. Right. Um, But, but I could see that being a read of this as this sort of like contextualization and, and attempting to generate some level of sympathy for these, these young women who committed this monstrous act. And I'm wondering what you all thought about that. Hmm. Oh, can I say one more thing about the queer thing? I don't know if I already said this. I forgot. Um, Also, 
Peter Jackson's history as a filmmaker, as we talked about in Lord of the Rings, like he has a very clear understanding of queer aesthetics. Like those clay royal people are ridiculous looking, frankly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They're so I mean, good. They, they work, They're so they work good. in the context yeah. of the film, but like it is definitely spectacle and artifice. Um, but yes. anyways, rehabilitation, monstrosity. I think... Um, to me, this film is positioned slightly differently than if you were doing something like uh, Ted Bundy or yes. mm-hmm. um, who's the hot serial killer that everyone loves. I thought that was Bundy. Oh, it's, okay. Yeah, it's yeah, the one it that uh, what's the Disney Channel man played with Zac Efron. Yeah. Did, yes. did a Bundy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yes. Okay. <laughs> Different than a Ted Bundy or that guy in the Jinx. Um, yes. As you can oh. tell, I watch a ton of true crime. Um, <laughs> Um, I actually did watch a lot with my with my dad growing up. He used to watch Cold Case and whatnot, and for the first oh, forty eight yeah. hours. But they would give me nightmares, despite the fact that yes. I was watching slasher films as a twelve year old. Completely dif- different thing. Completely different <clears throat> thing. I do think that this film is positioned a little bit differently because it seems to be. Well, on the one hand, I I don't think that that our reading of it's it's sort of commentary on imperialism subtext i don't think that's by accident because jackson is like not an unintelligent filmmaker mm-hmm. um and given that the lord of the rings is also regardless of what tolkien wants to say very much about industrialization post-war mm-hmm. um i i think it, it he has an awareness of sort of the systematic machinations of of the this case, and even though mm-hmm. it is not framed as a courtroom thing, um, I think given that experience, he's sort of marrying both his interests, his broader interest in monsters with his like splatter films, as well as an interest seemingly in social marginalization. Um, yes. Yeah. So I don't think it's like the same sort of or maybe because I'm queer, I have like a somewhat of a, a bias towards like gay killers. I love a gay villain. I I love a gay villain. <laughs> I love a gay villain. Yeah. Um. But I do think he he uh, there's like a uh, an empathy and in um and a curiosity built in. I don't think he necessarily wants to exonerate them necessarily, but yes. I do think that there's a desire to better understand the sort of emotional and psychological circumstances. I totally agree, and I. I think that's evidence in just like my emotional response to the movie. I was really disturbed by the girls by the end of the film. Um, but I also wasn't unfeeling toward them. Like mm-hmm. I, I think Jackson does a really good job of, of um, through the subjectivity of, of the film uh, allowing us to build relationships with these two people as we watch their relationship um, unfold and develop. And so by the end, I was horrified, yes, and really disturbed by the murder. Um, and I thought that they did a great job shooting that because that scene is just bone chilling. But I also just like felt deeply sad about the whole thing. And and yeah, I agree with you that there I very much have a strong, strong reaction, a strong bristling to this terrible um propensity that we have in in hollywood to 
fetishize and explore like white male serial killers. Like I just mm-hmm. don't understand it. I um I have a, a personal history um with uh an aunt who was murdered uh when she was young by a white man in the 70s just hurting women and like I I just don't see the need to explore those stories. I mm-hmm. do think yeah. these stories um particularly the ones that are about people on the margins um is an important way for us to explore you know, not necessarily, as you said, like exonerating, but just understanding the ways in which personal is political in many mm-hmm. ways. Absolutely. Um, and I I think this movie does an excellent job of that. Yeah, I definitely have a suspicion that Jackson knows, Jackson and Fran Walsh know that Heavenly Creatures sort of falls in the lineage of things like rope, Alfred Hitchcock's mm-hmm. version of Leopold and Loeb or, or and my, Swoon, my favorite which I believe, Hitchcock movie. Yeah. And yep. Swoon, which I believe, which is the um, Tom Kalen version mm-hmm. of Leopold and Loeb, which came out in, I think, 1990 or 1992, which was yeah, part like, of the Nuclear Cinema, mm-hmm. as well as um, The Maids, the Jean Genet play about the two maids that killed their, um, their, their mistress. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's based on the um, Christine and Leah Palpin um, case. All of those examples are ways, are, are ways in to understanding broader um, social um, and political ideas yes. um, by using people on the margins as their entry point. So it, mm-hmm. They're either dealing with class or labor um, or misogyny, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yes. And I think that that's ultimately the distinction, right? Like this is why this stands apart from something like a Ted Bundy biopic that's all about like how many women wanted to sleep with him while he was, you know, on trial. Um, that that one of those things is an exploration of privilege, and one of those things is an exploration of of oppression and and sort of like yeah, uh, yeah, systemic uh, oppressions. Yeah, there's yeah. no other word for it beyond that, that. But that systems and institutions are or have some sort of complicity in the creation of mon- of certain monstrosity or certain mm-hmm. monsters. Absolutely. Yeah. And absolutely. I think that this film absolutely goes there with it. You know that that all the things that you're mentioning, right? Like, like class and, and the treatment of, of their relationship and, and uh, yeah, the, the, even in, in the aftermath of it, you know, as we've said, sort of like the lack of any sort of rehabilitative action in terms of their imprisonment and, uh, and, and sentencing seems to suggest that these young women were on the outskirts to begin with and only further pushed in that direction by all those systems that are supposed to be there to, protect and and uphold communities and and the social fabric um, mm-hmm. that, that they were never a part of it and so they create this own version of uh of their of their reality that uh, that better suits their desires and their needs the last thing i want to say on this and then maybe we can speak briefly on some of the formal qualities of the film because there's just so much to talk about there but um on this note of sort of like the social construct um and the institutions that uphold and enforce uh you know these social and political constructs it's interesting too the way that the movie explores sort of 
the right way to transgress and mm -hmm. the the way that is seen as depraved and afflicted and you know contains malady um mm. because we do see transgression in other um in other places and in other figures particularly mm. in the figure of Juliet Hume's mother who is herself uh painted as hypersexual potentially in the same way that they that they might uh, that the girls might be viewed as and uh she commits adultery you know she's not faithful to her husband she's clearly also not a good mother right like she's kind of dismissive and doesn't really want to be around her daughter and sees her more as like a plaything. and then when she gets bored with her she runs off to the store or whatever it may be um and so i think it's interesting that they're uh that the movie does also show us that like not all transgressions are created equal and that there are plenty of examples of adults in their lives who are behaving badly, but it's acceptable. And I can see that and I'm inferring sort of my own perspective on this read, but I could see that being a confusing and frustrating uh, thing for an adolescent and would perhaps make them want to rebel even further. There's also a statutory rape. Yes. <laughs> in the film. Like, totally. Yeah. Like, uh, you like, know, like full on rape. There was the full, yeah, full on rape. On. Yeah. yeah. It's a full on rape. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and, and that, you know, to the, the people who witness it and, and mind you, like, this is actually witnessed rather than just the implications on behalf of like the yeah. parents and, and other uh, parts of, of, Pauline and Juliet's relationship is just kind of treated as like a, oh, shame on you, like, you know, like giving yourself up to a boy kind of thing. She's punished. She, for it. Yeah. She's, she's the, called she's a one slut. punished. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. She and and her father says that she broke his heart. Right. Yes. And then he just like politely asks John to leave. He's like, don't come back here. Well, and it's also interesting to see Pauline's response, right? Because she doesn't that doesn't end the infatuation. She continues to see John and we hear from at least one diary entry that she is sort of drawn to him in some way and enjoys spending time with him that they were talking for hours and hours about this, that, and the other. Um, and she's recounting to Juliet at one point that they're, they're hanging out and Juliet's getting quite jealous. Um, so I think it's even it's even interesting to consider, you know, um, despite the fact that she's punished and that this man has transgressed in a way that even she herself is not allowed to, that mm -hmm. she's still kind of drawn to it and isn't, you know, I think it it's evidence. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's evidence of how constructed all of the rules and sort of societal norms that are imposed on us just mm -hmm. how arbitrary they all are in many ways mm -hmm. um and i think that the characters of pauline and juliet understand that even if they're not able to articulate it mm -hmm. and i think they implicitly know that those those rules and, and social uh boundaries are constructed and created by people in power who are often men and they most affect women yes other marginalized people precisely mm -hmm. we have yet to talk about uh the Anne perry connection oh. <laughs> which i guess we can we can discuss briefly here but um in 1994 a book was released 
um, by a, a woman who was a long time, I, I think, fan of crime novels and and um, wanted to do a biography on on this author who went by Anne Perry, uh, who lived like in like the Scottish Highlands and had briefly gone to the United States and converted to Mormonism, um, but but who, like her, grew up in New Zealand in Christchurch. Um, and so in, in the same year that Heavenly Creatures came out, it was revealed that this woman who had an incredibly uh, prolific career and something like 60, I think, works of, of creative fiction to her name is in fact Juliet Hume and was the one of the young women responsible for the murder of uh, Honora Parker. And it, and it happened like at the same time as the film was coming out and this sort of like in, insane fallout uh, kind of occurred in this person's life. There's like a, a a documentary that was made in like 2009, I believe that you can watch. It's called like Anne Perry Interiors or something. It's relatively mm. brief. It's like 70 minutes. Mm. Um, but yeah, it just tells a little bit about like her history. She seems uh, from, from what I gather and can read about her, uh, to have a great deal of regret <laughs> around uh, her involvement in in this murder, uh, but she also vehemently denies that her relationship with Pauline uh, was in any way romantic or sexual, and that to me seems like it's it's maybe a little bit of retconning, considering that uh, most of the or actually all of the voiceovers in in the film uh, on Melanie from Melanie Linsky's character come from direct journal entries from Pauline Parker's journals mm-hmm. right um, where she explicitly details the way in which they connect physically yeah and Anne Perry converted to Mormonism so it yeah. behooves her and her religious outlook to um you know to r- redact that part of her history right Kyle were you Mormonism. aware of <laughs> no I I I did not know this I, I was not aware of this connection, but it's incredible. Yes. Yeah, it's so it's... bizarre. It's in, it's insanely bizarre. Mm-hmm. When I was reading more about her, um I like I thought I I thought that Mormonism specifically was such an interesting religion for her to be drawn to, given that um that it's all about temperance. It's all about temperance. You you wear like undergarments to prevent Mm -hmm. you from you know viewing another person's corporeal reality in any sort of (laughs) sexual way Mm -hmm. and also that the the sex in in the mormonist church is highly utilitarian it's Mm -hmm. for procreation right right there's no room for exploration Mm -hmm. or um sort of nascent desires that go outside the confines of you know what is biologically possible with mm-hmm. sex so mm-hmm. i especially i just for find women. especially mm-hmm. for women yep. i mm-hmm. find the conversion to mormonism to be evidence of what she's denying but right. that's that's my inference a larger psychic break than say like a creating a fantasy world and murdering your friend's mother maybe who amongst us um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Want to hear something mildly amusing? Yes, please. please. I almost converted to Mormonism in high school. Oh boy! Did you? Oh my gosh! <gasps> yes. Would you be willing to uh, tell us more? Oh yeah, absolutely. It I it wasn't super super serious. Um, but I had a crush in high freshman year of high school. I had a crush on this girl who was 
Mormon, and I thought that if I converted to Mormonism, she would love me back. She already had a boyfriend, <laughs> by the way. But I like read read parts of the Book of Mormon. I went to service with her a couple of times. I went to a Mormon dance with her. Um, I watched an eight hour PBS documentary on uh, the history of the Church of Latter Day Saints. Oh my um, gosh! Yeah. No. Did okay. you apply to Brigham Young? I didn't get that far. Did, I think I was gone snapped by the time out of it, like <laughs> after a couple of months. So she's like, "This is not good idea for me." This is a really pertinent story. I feel like Kyle because this this is speaking to something that the movie I think explores and that we've all experienced as adolescents, which is this. Um, there's I found myself too, like in a lot of ways when I was growing up, like you know, sort of like really leaning into a certain like hobby or, uh, or identity or like for a while I was like really obsessed with like Victorian England because like there was this figure on Avonlea, which is the show I used to watch that like Mm -hmm. I totally had a crush on and it was taking place in Victorian era England. And, um, and I think it's interesting the ways in which, you know, what we're talking about with with these personal stories, but then also with this film that, you know, adolescents also uh, often, I should say, find the outlets of the adult world to be sort of like ill-equipped for Mm -hmm. their desires. Um, And so oftentimes, you know, we are sort of like pushing into these spaces or exploring religions or hobbies that like, might make someone like us or might make us feel a little bit, you know, more ourselves, whatever that may be, because or feel wanted precisely because when you are at that age of 13, 14, there's, I don't know about you all, but I mean, I was, I was positively like loathsome, both sort of like outwardly as an adolescent girl, but mm-hmm. also just like inwardly, like mm-hmm. did not like my body, myself, like yeah, you're uncomfortable in your own skin all yeah. the time at that age. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that it's evidenced by a lot of the the statements from Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson about what their goal was and aim was in creating the film. Right. And And that they largely as they came to decipher these two characters they read the diaries they apparently sought out and interviewed a ton of people Mm. who were like their classmates their their teachers like people who knew them doctors what have you and all of them kind of came back with the same sort of answer that these were very brilliant studious thoughtful creative girls um and and ultimately i think led them to approach the the film from this place that said like it's it's a relationship that's just gone wrong right mm-hmm. it's just these two people feeding into all of those larger anxieties um in a way that ends up being incredibly violent and and horrifying but you know we we joke and say you know who amongst us but like talking about and tapping into i think maybe that that level of of anxiety that that discomfort that that loathsomeness that you feel at that age I, I think that there is some sympathy to be drawn from it. I think that there is an element that, I mean, Jackson and Walsh really want us to say like, yeah, I, I mean, I guess this kind of, this could make sense. I would argue that every relationship, maybe particularly queer, queer relationships, um, given the often shared 
sense of otherness, but that that relationship gone wrong aspect and that um misuse or misimplementation of anxiety and fear and terror as well as creative genius mm-hmm. um i think that is lurking beneath every relationship mm-hmm. that that can definitely implode for almost anyone yeah and i would also maybe posit that their relationship is less a relationship gone wrong i think that that's perhaps a misunderstanding on Jackson's part. And I actually think, and our conversation has affirmed this for me, that this is evidence of, it sounds far too trite to say what I'm about to say. So think of interesting (laughs) words and insert them, but um, that it's a, it's society failing these girls. And I guess a better, Mm -hmm. a better way to say that is that the confinements of these you know, social constructs, the sort of fetters of like the adult world living in a proper imperialist, you know, outpost uh, of the British Empire, that like that is what fails these two women that are not Mm -hmm. able to fit into the boxes that that particular society is asking them to fit into mm-hmm. and that it's not necessarily that their relationship has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I think that that's fair. There's, I mean, there's a cat in Carly and I's life who I, I'm pretty certain both of us would take a life for, yeah, for if, if for sure. societal uh, restrictions <laughs> re- required us to do so. So, you know, it's, I, there, there is, I think, a, as you said, an understanding of that here that he is my sister's cat, but he is my human child. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. I understand. There, there's a spirit in there. Many human souls, I think, that that live inside that cat. Um, I just want to say one more thing. Yeah. We don't need to talk about the aesthetics and the sort of cinematographical choices of the film because we could talk for another hour about all that but (laughs) i I think we should though if we're not going to go there at least give a little bit of a shout out in this film to uh to the inception of of weta workshop Uh the Mm -hmm. the visual effects company um led by by richard taylor doing a lot of the the digital and practical effects here who become household names uh in 2001 with the release of Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. and um, and and this is sort of the the inflection point of that relationship and, and the creation of that and, and the effects in this movie are stellar well and also to bring up Kyle's um, argument in his polygon piece about Lord of the Rings which is how campy this movie is um, and and aesthetically and uh, and kind of sonically that lean into camp with like the scoring with Mario Lanza operas and um, and also like children's songs too. And, and mm-hmm. the ways in which the cinematography kind of mirrors that, um, the sort of sweeping vistas on a hilltop kind of match that operatic mm-hmm. quality and also the kind of scanted angles, as you said, sort of sometimes felt kind of like childish and a little bit wacky. Mm-hmm. And... I really found the um, the employment of the more camp qualities of the film to be really well done and really mm-hmm. additive. It it mm-hmm. really bolstered 
the film and the subjective quality that we're talking about in a way that I found intensely attractive and engaging. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. And well, one, opera famously gay. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, two, I think it's, I, I really admire the clarity with which um, Jackson really establishes their fantasy worlds as unreal. Mm-hmm. Like they, yes. they're, it is clearly coming from the imagination of a young person and it does not try to augment it or make it seem more or, or make it resemble any sort of verisimilitude that would not make sense for the context of this film and the subjectivity that it is trying to illustrate. And I think that's that awareness of, of its themes and its artifice, I think is such a crucial part of its camp aesthetic. Like it, it like when it, when um, the, when the girls are running around and bumping into an Orson Welles esque figure, it's like, yeah. it is so clear that it is both kind of scary, but also kind of funny, but, and, very much discordant in a way and this uh this emphasis that you brought up in uh in talking about camp with the lord of the rings um on artifice as well and the ways in which this movie um sort of makes you i guess question what really is real to these girls like for all intents and purposes the thing that's most real for them is their connection and their feelings and the worlds that they've built. And that what's artificial is actually the real world. That is what Mm -hmm. contains more artifice and kind of um, degeneration and and depravity for them. Mm -hmm. Kyle, is there anything that we've missed that you know that we must touch on before we do kind of like our our final wraps here? I can't think of... I mean, I love, I I love the um, dresses that that scene when they're when when they are standing side by side, um, yeah. in the grass, and it's very complimentary. And I think going back to the idea of the film being like a failed persona swap, the patterns are are seemingly attempting to to create this same twinning effect that you would see in something like The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, but necessarily it is impossible to do that. It, it is Im- impossible to truly merge, I think, in the way that they may desire or aspire to. Mm-hmm. So yes. th- that's the last thing for me. I love that. No, that's, that's beautiful. Awesome. Yeah, That scene is incredible, by the way, when like, that like, that's the garden morph scene with yeah, like, most garden. of the digital effects and them that very iconic scene of the two of them kind of holding hands together and mm-hmm. in, in the greenery and yeah, yeah garden is the word that i couldn't figure out <laughs> <laughs> it's okay we all have those like the- no i'm telling you kyle like there he will sometimes play clips of my own voice for me when he's editing That's so mean. And it is it is it's not it's just such violence <laughs> it's, it is such violence it's not done uh with any malice at, at heart. It's just me editing without headphones for a little bit. So right. I can actually and be I'm present. Like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, being in, in quarantine for the last year and a half, I think all of us have gotten 
I, I think a little bit slower. Our, our vocabularies have shifted. I think oh, Ro- Roxana Haddadi yes. actually pointed this out to us when we she had did her on make the me show. feel so much better. Roxana Haddadi, a, a I another love film writer, so love her. She's she, great. We were talking about um, we were talking about uh, the the lovely film. Um, Close up. Close up. See, this is uh, the Abbas Kiarostami film. Um, yes. The Kiarostami film, and uh, I was I couldn't think of a word when we were talking, and she was like, "Oh no, there was a study done that over the last year plus, um, our vocabularies have shrunk because we are only sort of speaking to the same people every day, and and uh, aren't sort of." stretching into these other spaces that might force us to confront words or ideas that are different. Um, and I was like, that's terrifying and also very comforting <laughs> Yeah, because I can't remember yeah. most words. <laughs> Especially when we get in front of the microphone, it just kind of happens. Yes. Um, most words, but- most things, most, <laughs> most things. things I did yesterday. Time. What is time? We take copious notes and then I end up, j- it all is just pablum when I end up looking at it. It yeah. just doesn't make any sense. Uh, but I think that that's a pretty good place for us to to come to a close on this episode here. Uh, again, the film is Heavenly Creatures, directed by Peter Jackson. And thank you again to our wonderful guest today, Kyle Turner. Kyle, thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a delight and so much fun. I, I especially loved getting into the, like, um the imperialist reading because i had that like sort of floating in the back of my head but i wasn't sure if i was losing my mind so no. right there with you my you, friend you've come to the right place for that kind of analysis my friend we are <laughs> we are our game for it uh forever and always but uh kyle where can uh, where can people find you in your work um you can find me online with my dead brained takes uh, on Twitter at Tyle Kerner. That's T Y L E K U R N E R. It's just the spoonerism of my name because I'm very creative. Um, and you can <laughs> you can find my work around the internet. Um, you can I uh, I have a portfolio tylekerner.com. Um, but yeah, thank you again so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you for coming. This was such an awesome conversation. And thank you for. Uh, being the the reason that we watched this film yeah. it's a really special piece thanks for bringing us to another Thank fantastic you. film uh if you can find this one watch it it's it's uh another victim of the ephemerality of digital media um it's it's really only available in in physical form uh and, and Kyle even... has steeled against it though the Blu-ray copy. Yes, I, mean, I the, was so jealous. The Blu-ray copy does <laughs> does exist. It it's there. It's just uh, also exorbitantly expensive at this oh, point. Oh, how if much? You, I, we how were much looking is at it? copies on like it's it's out of print, so you find it on. on it's out you know, of print. It's out of print, so it's like on eBay oh. and and what have you. The cheapest ones I saw, even with like ten days left to bid on, were already up at like. Fifty, sixty dollars a pop. So wow. you know, just okay. make a bunch of copies and sell them on eBay. That's right. Okay. <laughs> yes, but uh, I'm gonna you, have to some have someone teach me how to do that because I don't even know how to like torrent a film. <laughs> I'm very stupid. <laughs> I don't either. No, I. For those of you out there who you know have a guy who knows a guy who can get you a copy of this that fell off the back of a truck, uh, do it. <laughs> you know, f- find it, watch it. It's it's terrific, um, and and an excellent. Uh, companion piece to the rest of Jackson's oeuvre. 
but uh, we are wrapped, I think, on this episode. As always, you can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. That's on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, you can subscribe to us at uh, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod if you like what we do. And for just $5 a month, you get access to uh, a bi-weekly bonus episode and lots of other fun content that we're putting out there. Uh, shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda. And uh, we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Spagnola che fanti, tu sei più 